Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. I've entitled the message something very simple today. Sayings, astonishment, and authority. Sayings, astonishment, and authority. Significantly enough, those are the three points of our outline. And you'll see where we got them from in just a second. So today we bring the study of the Sermon on the Mount to a close. Now, it has been an absolutely life-changing study for some, right? I've heard of people giving up habits that they've had for years because they weren't going to be ruled by two masters. I've heard all kinds of stories of how the Lord is at work in people's lives. I will tell you in my life, this study has been absolutely transformational. To spend 21 weeks in the red letters of Jesus Christ, speaking directly to disciples, teaching disciples what it means to be disciples, this has been absolutely life-changing for me. And I know that if you've been receiving the Lord's word in faith, that it's been life-changing for you. So today, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Heavenly Father, we do approach your word as what it is. It's the very words of God. And Lord, we know and we recognize that you have absolute authority over our lives. Father, reign in us, reign in me. As we open your word today, would you show us who we are and would you show us our Savior? Would you make the book live to us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, notice those three words there. First of all, verse 28, uh, Jesus had finished these sayings. Then verse 28, also the people were, what? Astonished. All right. And then verse 29, he taught them as one having what? Authority. All right. There's our three words. There's our outline for today. Here's the main point. If you're the kind of person that comes to church and you like to just get the main point and then you like to wander off in your mind and you have a hard time focusing, let me make this really simple for you. Because Jesus is God, he has absolute authority over you, right? Qualified to teach humans the way they should live, his teachings are to be studied and obeyed. Now, that's like the message in a, in a couple of sentences. So if you got that, you're good to go. Do what you got to do. Um, but let's dig in and just spend a few more moments looking. We could just wrap it up now, but we'll just spend a few more moments looking at some different things. His sayings, number one, and so it was when Jesus had finished these sayings. Now, what sayings, right? So Matthew chapter 5, this is where it all began. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, it began with the Beatitudes. Now, these are the attitudes that true disciples of Jesus are to have in their heart. This is the blessed way to live. Does anybody remember a different way that we could translate that word blessing? Look in chapter 5, right, where he says in verse 3, blessed are the poor. Does anybody else, you know, have a different, remember what we talked about when we were there? What could you say about that word? Blessed is the way, or what? What is it? Yell it out. Happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. That's the Greek word, makarios, and it could be translated happy. Oh, how happy, right? And that was the first section there. How to be happy, essentially, right? There are some people that need a huge lesson in how to be happy, right? And Jesus gives that in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 5. He first of all starts off saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, 
We talked about this wasn't poverty poor. This was poor in spirit. These are those that recognize their spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord, right? They understand, I don't have what it takes. I'm not perfect. Um, remember, uh, you know, this is the person that understands that they need a Savior because they're poor in spirit. And then the next one, blessed are those who mourn. This is not somebody that's just depressed, like they've been through you know, some tragedy or trauma in life and they're mourning. That's not what this has to do with. These all, these all go in a logical conclusion. So first of all, poor in spirit, you're aware of your sin. And then if you're aware of your sin, you mourn over your sin. Blessed are those who mourn. These are the people that mourn over their sinful condition. And it says that they will be comforted. Isn't it a blessing that God comforts you? Have you ever been mourning over your sin and you're like, oh, the sin, the shame, the the corruption in my heart. And then, but God brings you the comfort like only he can bring you. He's so good. He brings that comfort to those who mourn over sin. And he says, blessed are the meek, right? For they shall inherit the earth. Now meek means they know their place, right? That's an easy way to say it. They know their place, right? I'm not God. Uh, I need to humble myself before God. And God says that as a human, as his child, as his servant, that I'm to humble myself before everybody else too, I'm not to be raised up and puffed up. This is the way to happiness, by the way, right? The people that are the humble, that are the servants, they're the happiest. You know, servants are welcome in like any culture. <laughs> you know what I mean? Have you ever noticed that? Somebody that comes and just humbles themselves and, uh, and, and looks up to, I'll tell you what, a humble servant looks up to everybody, right? Imagine a church like that with everybody that's so humble that everybody just looks up to everybody else, right? Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are people that crave the things of God, right? That they, they uh, like the psalmist says, my soul thirsts for the living God. Blessed are the merciful, it says, for they shall obtain mercy. That's, that's quite a promise there. Like, if you're merciful, you'll obtain mercy. Now, if you're not merciful, you know, it's, it's kind of implied there that you won't obtain mercy. If you're harsh and critical in your judgments of people, you're not going to get mercy. Right? That's, that's a scary thing. So I want to be as merciful as I possibly can to people. I don't want to even be in my heart critical and judge people harshly. I want to be merciful. Blessed are the merciful. He says, blessed are those that are pure in heart. Now, these are the people that don't just have a nice religious veneer. They're pure in heart, right? They're pure in their heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, that had two elements. Not only those that are trying to get man and women to be reconciled to God. Remember, it's, remember Jesus says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, um, <clears throat> that uh, Jesus, is that Colossians 1, verse 20? I believe it's, yeah. Uh, Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross, right? So you had hostile God the Father, objects of his wrath, you and me, and then Jesus Christ made peace by the blood of his cross, right? And so, God's ambassadors are also imploring men to be at peace with God. Come through Jesus Christ. He made peace. Not only that, they're making peace among one another. It's the opposite of a gossip. You know, somebody that's stirring it up between people. Do you know what she just did last week? Do you know what she just said? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's the opposite of that. It's people that are making peace. People that are sowing the seeds of peace. Blessed are the persecuted. Uh, those that are persecuted for Jesus' sake, for their reward will be great. And that's a great reminder that living for Christ, there's a reward coming. And that's an okay thing to focus on. Now, these are the attitudes. Uh, the, the Beatitudes is somebody else. Do you remember how else we can refer to the Beatitudes? I think Rose knows. They're the what? 
Yeah, the B attitudes, right? Yeah, good job. It's the way to the blessed life, how to live a good, happy life, to follow these things. Verses 13 through 16, Jesus says believers are salt and light. That as a believer in Christ, you're to have a purifying and, um, you know, like a, a purifying, a thirst creating, a preserving effect. That's what he means by your salt, right? What happens if you take salt? Say you get cut, right? You ever been cut and never had it infected, right? Say that you're cut and it's infected and you rip the scab off of it and somebody puts salt all in it, right? It's kind of got a purifying, cleanses out the infection sort of thing, right? But that's what Jesus is saying about you as a Christian. When you're put into the situation of a dark, corrupted world, you're to have this preservative sort of effect on it, right? Not only does salt do that, it creates thirst. See, when people are around you, they get thirsty for the things of the Lord, right? Man, I follow Jesus Christ. I want to follow if that's what it looks like. Because look at this person, you know, they're living out these beatitudes. Oh my goodness, I want to be like that, right? As his follower, your thirst-creating, preserving, purifying effect on this environment around you uh, is what you're called to do. Shine the glorious light of God into your work, into your school, right? Into your neighborhood, into your community. God, God says this is what Christians are. They bring the light. They bring the salt. Verses 17 through 20, Jesus got into this little section there about how does he deal with the Old Testament. And the, the question could be like this. is like, okay, Jesus, you brought some new thing. Uh, you're saying do away with the Old Testament, you know, and you brought this whole new way to live. Well, he says in that section, no, he came to fulfill it, not abolish it. And he demonstrated the true fulfillment of the law. And then in that section in verse 20, uh, he said, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, that you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's a scary statement for them in this day because the scribes and the Pharisees are kind of what you would think of today. I remember when I grew up, I was a kid, I didn't know much about church, and I would turn on TV church or something, and I would see a mass or something, or I would see something else, and I'd see guys with these robes on, and I'd see incense and all this stuff going around, and I was like, oh my goodness, you know, all that stuff was very intimidating to me. I thought, those people are holy, you know what I mean? Now, that's how it would have been in this day and age. Um, you know, these people that looked the part, Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed theirs. And you're like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, he gets into that in verses 21 through 48. What he does in that section is he, he goes through some common misinterpretations of the law. You see, the religious people of that day had an external veneer of religion right? They looked holy on the outside. They had the robes. They had the religious rituals. They had all the talk. They prayed on the street corners looking for people to, you know, they did all this different stuff as a show. But inward, Jesus says, they had dead men's bones. They were like a, you know, a whitewashed coffin. And so what Jesus says in verses 21 through 48 is he goes through these different interpretations of the law, how they interpreted the law of Moses. And this section, he goes, you've heard it said, but what? But I say to you, right, yeah, good, gold star. All right? The whole section, that's what I call that section, the you've heard it said, but I say to you section. And he does that, first of all, with murder and anger, right? He says, you say, uh, thou shalt not murder. Yeah, that's correct. But he says, but I say to you that whoever's been angry with his brother 
is guilty of murder. Then he goes on next and he says, look, you say don't commit adultery. That's good, right? But I tell you that if you look at the opposite sex or even the same sex these days, uh, you're compounding sin upon sin there. But if you look at somebody with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery is what Jesus says. So some guys like fumbling around on the internet looking at pornography. Jesus says, you know what? You might think you've never committed adultery, but you've committed adultery as far as God's concerned, right? Now, then he gets into talking about divorce. And, you know, he talks about, Jesus says, you've heard it said, you know, just write your wife a certificate, send her on her way. And that's what they were doing. Uh, The rabbis taught that, hey, if your wife burnt your breakfast, you could just say that that's immorality and you could send her away. Some of the rabbis taught that. Jesus said, no. Uh, That's not the case. Um, The only thing that constitutes divorce is sexual immorality uh, as far as what God's intention was, right? God's intention was man and woman would become one flesh and what God brought together, no man would separate. That's his intention, right? Um, And Jesus says that there are acceptable reasons for people to split up. And Moses did write a certificate of divorce um, because people had a hardened heart. They were abusive, right? But Jesus said, this whole idea about writing a certificate of divorce just for any reason, you know, it's like you scribes and Pharisees, you've got it all wrong. You look religious on the outside, but your heart's filled with corruption. Now, that's kind of what that section is about in there. Just the, the you've heard it said, but I say to you. Another one, oaths. Remember, he says, uh, don't take any oaths of any kind. Remember that what they were doing? They were swearing by the temple. Oh, I swear by the temple. Now, that was somehow less of a binding oath than saying, I swear to God. You know, or I swear by the gold of the temple. It's like, I'm trying to get you to believe me, but yet I'm not saying I swear to God, so I'm leaving this loophole for I can, you know, so I can get out of it. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, don't make any oaths at all. Just be the sort of person where if you say something, you do it. You know, like your yes is yes and your no is no. Just be a person of integrity, right? If you're the type of person today that, you know, always has to be telling people, no, I swear to God, I swear to God, believe me. If you're that type of person, you're not living out what Jesus has said here, right? Jesus says, you don't even need to be that kind of person. He goes on to talk about the principle of non-resistance. Uh, you've heard it said to love your uh, neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, don't love, don't hate anybody, you know. Uh, if somebody punches you on the, on the cheeks, give them the other cheek. If somebody sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak Also, the principle of non-resistance, just don't engage in this sort of thing, right? Pray for those who spitefully use you. Bless your enemies. You've you've heard it say to hate your enemies. Well, here, let me tell you, love your enemies, right? That's, That's what Jesus said in that section. What he was doing was he was calling out the false interpretations of the law that the scribes and Pharisees had. And he says, as my followers, I don't want you to be a bunch of phony hypocrites, as disciples of Christ, I want you to be real people. I want you to be real, and I want you to obey from the heart. Now, Jesus was not bringing new commandments. Rather, he was teaching the correct way to interpret them. Isn't that cool that God wants something so much better than a religious phony veneer, right? Because you know, the one bad thing about religious phony veneers, here's one thing bad about them. There's many things bad about them. But here's one thing bad about them. You don't experience God in your life. You don't experience what he wants to do in your life. You don't experience healing. You don't experience growth. If you're just popping into a church, you know, with a face on, pretending to be somebody that you're not, you're you're missing out on a personal relationship with God. That's one of the bad things about that religious veneer is your heart remains untouched, even though that your hands, have you ever heard this? The Lord might have your hands, but does he have your what? Your heart, right? And so when he has your heart, that's when you start to experience him and get to know him and 
And he's so good. You start to know his faithfulness and his love and his care for you and what he wants you to be. And he makes you more like Jesus all the time. And, and you experience that deep peace in your heart. It comes by being honest. You know, that's, that's why Jesus called out the religion, that phony religion of his day. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and he taught a better way, a better way of healing, a better way of true, true discipleship, right? So chapter 5, he calls his followers to a new and different life, a life of obedience to a loving Lord from their heart. He's called us as bright, shining lights, reflecting the light, love, and grace and the glory of God into our world around us. As we do this, living the Beatitudes in humble confidence, humble obedience to his word, then we have that steady salt and light influence on the world around us. I think it's a good time to just stop and pray. Um, Lord Jesus, would you remove anything in my life that's stopping me from living like this? Would you show me what I need to part from? Would you show me what I need to get rid of in my life that I might live like this? Lord, would you take out of my life what I can't seem to get out of it myself? Now, into chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, he gets into the spiritual disciplines. Not only is he countering the uh, phony interpretations of the law, right? The external only. Now he gets into spiritual disciplines, specifically giving, uh, praying, and fasting. Jesus assumes that believers will do these things. Remember, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, when you do your alms, right? That's talking about giving, doing charity. Jesus assumes the believers will do these things, but he doesn't want his followers, he doesn't want his disciples to be like the hypocrites again. Now, what they were doing was they were giving to be noticed by man, right? They're the type of people that if you had an offering box in the church, they would make sure that everybody saw them and they would wait for that opportunity to just at least be seen by at least somebody, right? Just as long as somebody sees how spiritual I am, I'll go home, good. And now Jesus said, if you do that, you have your reward. Congratulations, that little look that you got Congrats, because that's it. It's not, you're not storing any treasure in heaven when you're giving like that. And it's an issue of the heart. It doesn't mean, you know, I don't, you know, I, I don't want you guys to all turn into a bunch of, you know, tithing ninjas, you know, like we don't ever see. You're like a Chinese star, like, like whoa, how did that even get, you know, like, you know, it, that's not what I'm saying. It's a motive of the heart, though. You know what I mean? It's truly a motive of your heart. You know what I mean? Like Mission Impossible. It'd be like Tom Cruise, you're coming down, like repelling from the ceiling, back up again. No, that's <laughs> He says in the Lord's Prayer, next, you know, he talks about praying. He goes, don't use vain repetitions like the heathen. You know what I mean? Don't, don't, um, you know, you don't, you don't have to say, like, repeat this thing 10 times. And if you do that, then like the keys of heaven unlock this thing. And, you know, here, oh, you did this sin? Oh, we'll repeat this 20 times and do this five times. Jesus is saying, no, you want to stay away from stuff like that. Like the pagans in that day were babbling, and they thought that they would be heard for their many words. But in fact, God says, uh, Jesus says, I want to teach you how to pray. He says, you pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? And so on. Now, in that prayer, we learn... A few things. First of all, that we're talking to a heavenly father. He's our father. He wants to hear from us. He's so good. He wants you to come sit on his lap, you know, metaphorically, you know, speaking. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But he's like a heavenly father. And you talk to him like that. My father. 
We also learn that his name is to be hallowed in your life. That means you're to be submissive to his will, to his name in your home, in your life, in your daily life, everywhere. And we also learn that it's that prayer is primarily about getting his will done, not about getting my will done, right? Lord, your will be done, your kingdom come, right? And that changed my prayer life. That has changed my prayer life tremendously. Uh, you know, I don't even know how I ought to pray often, Romans 8.26. Uh, but I do know that I'm to pray that his will be done. Um, and so... A lot of great lessons that you learn from the model prayer in there. It's not actually the Lord's prayer. It's actually the disciples' prayer. And so that's a good thing to hang on to because he asked for forgiveness of sins in there. You know, so the Lord Jesus isn't going to ask for forgiveness of his trespasses. It's the disciples' prayer. Then in verses 19 through 24 of chapter 6, Jesus gets into what he wants his disciples' attitudes to be towards material wealth and money. And he says, um, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot have two top priorities in life. Every human is created. The way that we're created as humans is we need a God. We need a top priority. We all serve a top priority. Every one of us do. But you cannot have two at once, right? And so Jesus says, look, money is, uh, you know, possessions, material possessions, rust going to destroy them, moths are going to eat them up. What he's getting at is there's a temporal nature to material things. Imagine if you just worshiped your lawn, right? Nobody does that, do they? Hank Hill does. You know, uh, in case they don't watch that show, I'm an old guy. Imagine if you worshiped your lawn, though. This time of year, you'd be like, oh, no. It's coming to an end, you know. And then the temporal nature of it, it's gone, right? Oh, my gosh, what will I do? But, you know, anything's like that that's temporal. And, and your heart, you know, you can't attach your, you should not attach your heart to anything that's dying like that. Like, you know, it's, it's one thing to say I have great affection for my lawn. I really like it. You know, I spend some work on it. I'm being a good steward of my yard. But, I mean, it's not my God, Right? That might sound foolish, but people do make a God out of just about anything, right? People do. They make a God out of relationships. They make a God out of drugs. They make a God out of money. They make a God out of sex. They make a God out of being popular. You know, they make a God out of all these things. How do you know if you've made a God out of something? You're obeying it. <laughs> you know, you can make a God out of Sprite. Haven't you seen that commercial? Obey your thirst, right? It's talking about idolatry. Those people know what, obey your thirst, you know, uh, you know. How do you know you're worshiping Sprite? Because you're obeying your thirst. You get up and leave. Right, right now, I just said Sprite, and you're going to start fidgeting. See? you got to go get Sprite. Obey your thirst. That's how you know you've made a God out of something, is when your relationship to Jesus Christ is coming secondary to your relationship with that thing. Right? It's a simple way to tell. Is anything getting in the way of your relationship with the Lord? That's your God. Very simple. Now, he warns that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And some people have a broken heart because they've got their heart fixed on things that are broken or breaking. And so where your heart is, that's where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So what do you treasure today? Right? Now, verses 25 through 34, the do not worry section. And it just flows naturally. If money is not your God, and if material possessions aren't really the commanding factor of your life, if, you know, worry you know, about these things isn't the top priority in your life, then Jesus says, go on. He goes on and says, well, don't worry then. 
You don't really need to worry. He says, look at the birds of the air. Your father feeds them. They don't store up into barns. They don't do anything like that. He says, but your heavenly father, uh, he cares for them. He feeds them. I don't know how you feel when you see a sparrow, but doesn't it bring this verse to mind? Every time you see birds, don't you start to think about, oh my God, Jesus, you're so good. You care for even that little bird right there. And uh, and you say that I'm more important than birds. It says that in another passage in the Gospels. It says, aren't you more important? Uh, You know, aren't you of more value than they? Two of them sell for a penny. Aren't you of more value to God than that? Right? Such an important lesson because for one, if you didn't know that if you were, if you didn't know that you were of more value than that, you learned that from that passage. You learned, well, hey, I didn't know that, but I, I guess I am because Jesus says I am of more value than that. So, uh, you know, some of you are coming up in value right away. You're like, well, I, I thought I was worthless, but not, I'm worth more than birds now, you know? So come on, give me more. Give me, I want to hear more, you know, Right? And you also learn that he tells you, you don't have to worry. You don't need to worry about anything. And in fact, he takes it farther and he says, I don't, he's not saying I make a suggestion. He says, look, you're my disciple. So listen, stop worrying. It's in the, it's in the Greek tense to stop. Just stop worrying and trust your heavenly father. Some people, you know, that are, you know, maybe more harsh than I want to be have pointed out rightly that it is sinful to worry. It is a sin, Right? It's a natural thing, and you will experience it time and time again in life. But if you dwell on that, and you don't confess that for what it is, if you don't say, my Heavenly Father, I confess that I'm doubting your goodness and your power and your ability and your desire to want to take care of me. If you don't confess that, that means you're walking around in unconfessed sin, and God doesn't bless unconfessed sin, right? So it's important for you to recognize that worry is a de- it's definitely a sin because it It comes against the very character and nature of God. Plus, it comes against the very command of Jesus Christ. Do not worry, right? He says, don't worry about clothing either. Haven't you seen all the beautiful flowers all over the place? God puts all this work and this care into them. Put them under a microscope. They just get more beautiful, right? You don't think God will clothe you if he's done all that for them? Of course he will. I love the do not worry section. Now, So what with chapter 6? Well, this life Jesus called us to is marked by charity, giving, that's God-motivated, humility, sincerely in our prayer lives, seeking his will, the laying up of heavenly treasures, keeping our hearts free from the worship of material wealth. This life that Jesus called us to is blessed with the absolute confidence that he's our heavenly father and that he is gracious and he was going to provide everything that that we truly need. That's chapter 6, moving into chapter 7. Then he gets into this uh, difficult topic, and he says, um, don't judge. Don't judge others. Now, we are not to be a harsh, critical, hypocritical people, right? And we talked about that's probably one of the most favorite verses of the unbeliever. Hey, Jesus says don't judge. Well, when you read that section, what is coming out of it is you're not to use hypocritical, harsh judgment you do need to make judgments about people because remember Jesus says don't take, you know, you know, don't don't put your pearls before swine. Well, you have to make some sort of judgment to figure out who those are, right? And we're to inspect the fruit of other people's, you know, walk with the Lord. Jesus says that later. So we're obviously to make judgments, but we're to make correct judgments based on the word of God. But first what we need to do, and this is a problem with a lot of people, this is a very tempting sin that we fall into is we, we have this temptation to be able to see all the sin in somebody else while we overlook the sin in our own life. 
We can see the little sawdust in somebody else's eye, and we can't see, you know, the whole plank that's in our own eye. And so Jesus says, look, you know, before you're going to do eye surgery, you know, on somebody else, before you've got the scalpel down there on their eyeball, you know, why don't you uh, do surgery on yourself, you know? Why don't you get before the Lord and the Word of God, and why don't you ask His Holy Spirit to search you and to try you and to know you and to show anything that's grievous to Him? Why don't you do that first before? Because then what you'll be able to do is you'll be able to help others. You'll be able to bear their burdens. You'll be able to help them, you know, remove the difficult things in their life. You'll be able to help them. Uh, but, but it starts with you uh, taking care of your own stuff first. Then he gives this wonderful prayer um, a promise. I think it's connected in the sense where if we're going to live being non-critical, uh, taking the log out of our own eye, then we need to be people of prayer, right? And in 7 through 12 of chapter 7, he says, Ask, seek, and knock. Anyone who asks, uh, you know, anyone who seeks, anyone who knocks. We talked about the Greek tense there, right? You guys remember that? How it could be read more of like uh, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Right? And Jesus says, if you keep doing that, it'll be opened. And I think to live that kind of life of discernment, but yet, you know, not being a hypocrite, like it needs constant prayer, you know. But that promise just, you know, overall what Jesus is teaching there is persistence in prayer. Right? Some of us have this attitude where you say, well, I prayed to God once about it. He didn't answer, but I don't want to keep pestering him. Well, listen, there are, there's a parable about a, a girl, a woman that keeps coming to this judge over and over again. You know, you guys have read that. There are plenty of lessons in the Bible where Jesus teaches persistence in prayer. Keep on doing this, you know. Another reason people stop praying is because they see a little bit of victory in some area and then they stop praying for that thing. Um, but you need to keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. And then the beautiful promise that it will be opened to you. You ever experienced that where you know God has opened up and you're like, oh, you know, I've been seeking the Lord, seeking the Lord for this thing, and I know he has opened up, right? He's so good, isn't he? You just keep asking, seeking, knocking, and all of a sudden, sometimes. You know, the thing about knocking, we talked about this, where it implies, like, okay, your door's closed at night, right? And when you see people walking the dog by your house, do you just open the door for no reason? Like, hey, the door's open. No. But if they were to knock on the door, then would you open the door? Yeah, simple, right? So this implies that there are some things that God's only going to do when you knock on the door, right? And some of you are just asking. But he says, wait a minute, ask, seek, and knock. You say, well, I asked God one time. Well, God says, well, seek my face. Well, no, I, got, I don't have time for that. But I can ask you for stuff. Anybody ever been a parent? How about a kid asking you for something? Hey, can I have this thing? Oh, why don't you ever seek my face? The only time you talk to me is when you want something. Okay. You know what I mean? So you ask God, but then he says, seek my face. Do you seek his face? You say, well, I've been asking and I've been seeking your face. Okay, are you knocking? Been knocking on doors? You've been, have you been stepping out in faith? Are you waiting, God? Are you waiting on God for, for him to lift up your foot physically and get it off of your couch and start stepping out in faith? Right? Are you going to try things? Have you been trying things in faith? 
taking ventures of faith? It's a way to knock. Knock and it will be open. What a promise. God is so good. And then he encourages us even more, right? And he says, what kind of father, if you, you know, to, you know that section there? If you're a father, you know, if your kid asks you for a fish, would you give him a serpent? <laughs> you a pretty bad dad right there. Oh, I got a good plan tonight. So I went to the, I got this, uh, this serpent. <laughs> the kid thinks we're having tilapia. <laughs> oh, it's going to be great. The rest of us, we're going to have salmon, tilapia, grouper. But, uh, you know, the lid's going to come off of his plate. And it's going to be a serpent, man. Yeah. Like, that's freaking twisted, man. God's not like that. Some people are scared to pray to him. Oh, if I pray to God, he's going to teach me a lesson. Oh my goodness, if I draw too close to him, he's going to just shake things down in my life and I'm not going to be able to handle it. No, that's not God. He's a good father. Look back at your life. Everything, everything that he's allowed into your life, hasn't good come out of it? Come on now. Come on now. Everything that he's allowed in your life, if you've got spiritual eyes here today, can't you at least see something good that's come out of all of it? Come on now. He's so good. Your Heavenly Father loves to give good gifts to those who ask him. Really? You're not going to ask anything? Yeah. Anything you ask in my name will be done for you, Jesus says. How do I ask things in your name? Well, seek my face. Oh, okay. Get to know him. That's right. Hey, that's what we're doing, Lord. That's what we're doing here. Praise God. Then he gets in verse 13 through 23, and he talks about the narrow way. He says there's these two ways in life. One leads to death, one leads to life. And he says the way that leads to life is narrow, and few go in by it because it's difficult, but that's the way to life. He says there's a wide path that a lot of people are on. Hey, everybody else is doing it. You guys that are in school, you're in the high school these days. There's this thing that high schoolers say. Oh, everybody else is doing it. You ever heard that? Yeah, that's the wide path. Everybody else is doing it. You ever heard, hey, just go with the flow, man. Know where the flow goes? Where does the flow go? Goes down to the drain, right? That's where it goes. Hopefully, unless you need some Drano. You know what I mean? You've seen it before. It's swirling around, about to go down the toilet. You know, it's, oh, my goodness. But that's what happens when you just give your life over and just do what comes naturally, you know? That's what happens. How about the broad path of, uh, you know, pluralism? There's many ways to get to God. It doesn't matter. Just choose one. Islam, Buddha, sincerity. Just be sincere. Just go, you know, I'm into new age. I'm into whatever. That's a broad path. There's another example of the broad path is if there's a God, when I get there, he'll be cool to me because I haven't killed anybody and all that stuff like that. That's the broad path. Jesus says that path leads to destruction. Why is the path narrow? It's because it's exclusive. John 14, chapter 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the, and the, and nobody what? Comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus says. Hey, if all ways lead to God, if, okay, if, that, if that's true, then what Jesus says isn't true. But they both cannot be true in a logical, rational, you know, God-established universe. doesn't work. The path is narrow. Make sure you're on the narrow path. Then we talked about two trees. Uh, Jesus went on, and he was getting people to make a choice. He said, what path are you on? And then he talked about two trees, and he said that this broad path, he said there's people out there that are willing to get you off of the narrow path 
and start to try to get you back onto this broad way. And so he says, beware of false prophets because they come to you in sheep's clothing, but really they're ravenous wolves inside. And what they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to make that path broad. And we talked about how they're doing it from everything from false predictions. They're, you know, people predicting that Trump would have two terms in office and all that. We're like, those are false prophets, you know, these people making false predictions. But it also applies to false teachers teaching a different doctrine. I watched this guy named Brandon Robertson. Has anybody come across him? Well, he's about a 23, four-year-old homosexual theologian. And what he's doing is he is ravenously um, indoctrinating people with his reinterpretation of the Bible. Um, I'll give you one example. Um, and, it's, and it's fitting the critical race theory and all this other stuff that they're trying to pump on you guys in public schools. Um, here's an example. Um, hey, Jesus, you know... Remember the remember the um, the woman that says, um, uh, "Jesus, will you um, heal my daughter?" And he says, uh, "It's not good for me to give um, to the dogs what belongs to the children of God." Right? And uh, you guys remember that part of the Bible. And um, this guy's interpretation of that is that because she comes back and says, "Hey, isn't it even the dogs eat the crumbs off the table?" Right? Well, his interpretation of that is Jesus was racist against this woman. But then what this woman does is she gets up and she speaks truth to power. That's a woke, uh, you know, little theme statement. But they have spoke truth to power. Has anybody heard that? Right? Okay. Well, she stands up and she confronts Jesus on his racism. And then Jesus repents of his racism and says, yeah, it's okay. Go ahead. And that's the kind of stuff that's going on uh, today. So beware of false teachers. I mean, it sounds interesting. Like if you don't know your Bible at all, which unfortunately so many Christians don't today. It's just unfortunate. That's why we labor week after week and teach the Word of God here, right? And so I'm so glad for you guys that you go home and get in the Word of God. Beware of false teachers. Then he says that there are two foundations, right, <clears throat> uh, that you can build on. And he says um, one's sand and one's rock. Now, if you build on sand, you're the foolish person that hears the Word of God and doesn't do anything about it. But if you're the wise person that builds on rock, you're the person that hears the sayings of Jesus and does something about them. And so, um, very cut and dry. Jesus says, if you take everything that's taught in the Sermon on the Mount, if you take and you base your life on Jesus, if you build on him, when the storms come into your life, you may get beat up a little bit, but you're not going to fall. Right? I don't want to fall. Okay, well then hear the words of Jesus and do them. Right? Quit, just quit just hearing them not doing them. Because Jesus says that's foolish. He says you're a fool if that's what you do. But you hear these words and you do them. So that's chapter 7. Now, verse 28, the people were astonished at his teaching. Now, they were astonished because it says right there, he taught as one having authority. And we'll talk about that in a second. But astonishment, isn't it astonishing that meekness is esteemed over pride and self-esteem. Isn't that amazing? That's astonishing. Boy, if you put me in, uh, you know, a psychologist's office today, or, you know, and they would tell me that for sure self-esteem is what's needed. And Jesus says, no, the problem is, is everybody's too elevated. You need to humble yourself, right? And they're saying, no, we need to build self. And he's saying, well, okay. If, if all this counseling's working and all these pills are working, how come the rates of people with these things isn't dropping? 
<laughs> right? So it's astonishing that Jesus says the biggest problem that all of us have is we're self-absorbed and prideful. And we need to humble ourselves and be consumed with God and not be consumed with self, right? And I think that's astonishing, even in this world today, and I'm sure it was then. God wants the heart and not mere outward religious observance. That's pretty astonishing, isn't it? Because there's a lot of places that you could go today that are just interested in your hands that don't want to take the time to be concerned about your heart, but God's concerned about your heart. It's also astonishing that some of the most religious-looking people have no relationship with the Father, and they rely on their professions of faith and the works that they do in his name. But Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's also pretty astonishing. It's astonishing when somebody speaks with authority. Today our world, and tragically even in progressive Christianity, people are applauded for saying they don't know. Well, I don't know. It's not really clear what that is. I'm wishy-washy. I'm not dogmatic about anything. Do you believe Adam and Eve were literal people in the Garden of Eden? Well, I don't know. Do you believe that, you know, without Jesus Christ, you're going to go to hell? Well, I don't know. That's applauded today in this world, in a postmodern culture where objective truth becomes the enemy, and there is no such thing as objective truth. It's your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, right? You've heard that. If you're in high school, I'm sure you've heard that. Hey, that's right for you, but it might not be right for me. Well, Jesus Christ said, here's right and wrong for everybody. Now, that's astonishing, right? The way that Jesus was speaking black and white about right and wrong, it could have got him killed. Oh, it did get him killed. <laughs> That's astonishing. He astonished people. And it says in verse 29, last point, his authority. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. The scribes taught like this. Well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, but Rabbi so-and-so disagrees, and so... I wonder if uh, Rabbi so-and-so proposes this. That's how they used to teach, right? Nobody taught like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came in and he said, I say to you. And that just blew people away. Reminds me of all this COVID business. Like, literally, one doctor will say something. Another doctor will say something else. One news channel says something. Another one says something else. Eventually, you're like, who is the real authority here, right? The same thing goes on with religion. You know, what life is all about. What's the meaning of your life? Why are you here on this planet breathing? You know, there's debates about that. You say, who's the real authority here, right? There's debates about, um, you know, how you should be living your life, what you should be doing, what happens when you die, you know, what is love? All these things, there's debates about this. And eventually you're like, who is the real authority here? And then you kids get on YouTube and then you start to type in these questions there and you start to get these answers from God knows who these people are and where their philosophies come from. But if it sounds good to you because you're, what the Bible calls you have itching ears and if somebody scratches your itch, right? If somebody says kind of what you're looking to hear, then you say, oh, that's truth. Because we're all being programmed to think like that these days, right? It's called confirmation bias. You should Google it if you're uh, an inquisitive sort of person. Research confirmation bias. 
So I've got a problem. I want to know what my life is all about. I want to know what depression is. I want to know what happiness is. I want to know what joy is. And so I go type Dr. Google, and he starts to give me advice. And it comes from whatever, and it contradicts everything else I've heard. And eventually you start to say, uh, you know, this is getting serious. I'm starting to get mentally sick because I'm absorbing this stuff. And uh, you say, who is the real authority here? Will the real authority just speak? And Jesus says, I did. Read my word. Before Abraham was, I am. Remember when he said that? Jesus claimed to be God in a way that with people that have spiritual ears, hear it. Now, God has authority to speak into your life and tell you who you are and why you're here and where you're going. God has that authority, and he does that. He brings health into your life because he brings truth into your life. And he has that authority. Jesus Christ had that authority. Jesus Christ had authority as he reinterpreted the law. He said, you've heard it said like this. He didn't reinterpret it. He correctly interpreted it. You've heard it said, but I say to you. He's like, okay, I'm the authority figure. Jesus Christ had authority in the works that he did. You remember he turned water to wine, he, the loaves and the fishes. You remember he healed lepers. He cleansed, uh, you know, cleansed lepers. He healed uh, paralytics. He uh, raised people from the dead. And, you know, remember uh, what it says in the Gospel of John, this man Jesus came, uh, this man came to Jesus, said by night, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus had authority. He also had authority displayed in his resurrection. His resurrection was witnessed by 500 people, Paul said. Other evidence of the resurrection is there was an empty tomb. All you would have had to do is produce a body, which they desperately wanted to, but they could not. They never found his body. Are you kidding me? Another proof of the resurrection is that 11 of his apostles died brutal, horrendous deaths because they wouldn't give up on what they knew to be true, right? Now, if they knew it was false, nobody dies for something they know is false, right? So Jesus has absolute authority over your life. And I'm going to conclude with this one statement. Um, Jesus has authority over your life. And have you surrendered to his authority? Are you building your life upon these sayings? Are you the wise person that's built on the foundation of Christ? 